You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. And belly on up to the 9-foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. My name is Chris. His name is Ed. This is Socks in the Basement. Get your pitchforks. Get your torches. We're going. Right, Ed? Is that is that it? I mean, it's mid-May. Uh, uh, Adam Kaplan from Socks on 35th was giving me a hard time this week on Twitter. Do you still believe they're going to be four games up in first place by the All-Star game? And I was like, I don't know. It's getting a little shaky. You know, I don't know if it's time to bring them out in terms of marching on them with the pitchforks and torches, but if you wanted to start sharpening the pitchforks, <laughs> that would be great. And as far as the torches, you know, let's let's start getting them ready because right. you need multiple torches. And in a pitchfork and torch situation, the big mistake most people make, not nearly enough torches. Torches burn out, man. They are not, it's not like a flashlight with a never-ending battery or something like that there. You know, you, you gotta you gotta be really fully prepared. So I, I think I think we're having a pitchfork sharpening and a torch-making party is what's going on at this point. Right. I mean, you got to make them properly. You don't want them to burn out. You want to have a, enough oil on the rags at the top of the torch if you're going with that kind of a torch. Enough rag. Yeah, you know. like, like an Indiana Jones-type torch. Or you can go with the traditional torch that you see basically when uh, they storm Frankenstein's uh, lair. I mean, there's there's lots of different kinds of torches we can go with. So we're in the planning phases right now of the pitchforks and the torches, and, and they would be justified. This episode, as in every episode of Socks in the Basement, brought to you by Family Waterproofing Solutions. Uh, remember, you get money off if you mention us. They're available 24-7. They're keeping water out of your house. They're taking care of things like sump pumps, but also any cracks in the foundation. You got seepage coming through. You name it. If it has to do with your foundation, water getting into your home, your basement, Anything going on around that level of the house, give them a call. They are so highly rated. They have won so many awards. They've been with us for years, and I hear nothing but good things whenever anybody mentions that they heard about them because of us and then went over there and got some work done or got an estimate or talked with them about their problem. 24-7-365-708-330-4466. See what a difference a family makes at FamilyDry.com. What is the biggest problem in your mind with the team? It's offense, right? Yeah, it's it's offense. I mean, defense hasn't been they're they're bad defensively, but they were bad defensively last year too. That's that's the the little secret that nobody talks about is how bad of a de- team defense they had last year. We talked about that. We talked about that on this show. We talked about that when we talked about what they had to go and get in the offseason. But what did they do, really? They, they didn't really address they, it. They, they didn't. You know, A.J. Pollock is an upgrade, I suppose. But Well, well they gave three years and over $16 million to Larry Garcia to clearly make him the starting second baseman. And he's a below-average second baseman. He can't move laterally. Every time he's on the run, he can't make the play to first in time. He's always given an excuse like, oh, that was a tough play. But I, I bet Josh Harrison and Tim Anderson most times make those plays on the run. Yohan Moncada does. He's a subpar defensive player. You had the opportunity to go fix second base. You didn't do it. You went with Leary and you signed Josh Harrison and the moment it didn't start working for him your manager couldn't wait to make Leary the starting second baseman oh yeah 100 percent. but offense is is clearly the biggest problem because you cannot take a game like the Sox had against Brady Singer okay Brady Singer was a highly touted prospect at one point came up was a middle and starter for the Royals but he has owned the White Sox and this year 
he has owned anybody. He barely owns his own underwear this year. Because even in AAA, he was getting just absolutely crushed. And he comes up and he throws a game that makes him look like an all-star. All right, so let's try to find the problem, okay? I'm going to give you some theories as to why the White Sox are struggling offensively. You tell me how much you believe these to be uh, reasons. You know, is it is it a major reason? Is it a minor reason? Is it a crackpot theory? That's what I want to do today, okay? You, you ready to play okay. along? And then we got Scott Merkin coming on the show here, uh, talking to us right after the series with the Royals ended before he jumped on the plane on Thursday evening. So we've got that on the show. We're going to find out what's going on with the team because he's right there embedded with them. So I'm going right to the source as we talk about a really rough stretch for the White Sox. But here we go. First theory, the baseballs are screwed up. You're putting baseballs inside of humidors. The baseballs are becoming heavier. And we're noticing when teams go to the West Coast, when teams go to warm weather, they're seeing offensive upticks. And the White Sox, because of their schedule, never went really to any warm weather climate at the beginning of the year. We saw baseballs dying at the warning track. We saw things that should have gotten out or had high probability to get out of the ballpark or be hard hit die and turn into flyouts. And instead of creating runs, they were failing at the plate. It got into the players' heads, influenced them. They've made stupid adjustments they didn't need to make or started pressing, and now they're all messed up. How much do you give to that theory? It's not an entirely crackpot theory, but at the same time, it's middle of May and this isn't news anymore. This isn't something that just popped up or like, oh, you know, it's the baseballs. This has been going on all season and it's been going on league wide and the teams that are making adjustments, smart adjustments are getting by and the teams that are not making smart adjustments like the White Sox are struggling. You cannot be a championship contending team and not be able to make adjustments on the fly to your offensive approach. And that could mean a number of things. That could mean something as very simple as lineup construction, where you're going with a more, you know, the, the players you have available to you that are more contact heavy versus guys that are going to rely solely on power. Or it could mean something as simple as just saying, look, we're just going to try and adjust our, our launch angle a little bit. We're going to try and hit more line drives. Uh, we want you guys to make contact. We want you guys to focus on getting on base. But what I'm seeing is I'm still seeing strikeouts in key situations. I'm seeing a lot of ground outs, which is guys trying to hit the ball in the air against pitches that are, are you're either going to connect with or you're not. And you're seeing just, you know, weak grounders everywhere. This, this is not a group of guys that shouldn't be able to make an adjustment at this point. And even the few guys that you're seeing that are able to make an adjustment are not the guys that are going to be able to carry the team. All right, another theory for you. This is a problem with talent evaluation and falls in the lap of Rick Hahn and those that are the pro scouts that surround him in his office. I mean, there are going to be people who are going to say, wait a minute, Tony makes all the decisions and fine, whatever you want to say. But in the end, Rick Hahn is the general manager of this team and the architect of how the roster is constructed. And the misevaluation of talent is his belief in small sample sizes that Gavin Sheets was going to come back and not only do what he did last year against pitchers, but he was going to continue to improve. That Larry Garcia was worth a three-year deal at $5.5 million a year and could easily plug not only the hole at second base, but was worth that kind of money to be moved around and left in the lineup all the time. That they, they thought they had more than they really had 
and didn't address problems like a team that hits left-handers far greater than a team that hits right-handers. They did not make the adjustments that needed to be made in the offseason and had a poor plan and, again, misevaluated the talent that they had on the team thinking it was better than it was. Not across the board, but with certain players that are the guys that you see sitting in the lineup between the 5 and the 9 spot or the 6 and the 9 spot. They made a mistake there. How much do you give to that theory? That's not a good theory. And here's why. I don't like that one. I I don't think it's a good theory. Because you you look up and down the lineup, and and we pick on Larry Garcia all the time. You know, I'm not picking on him. I'm picking on his contract. He's fine as a utility player. Larry's probably a great guy. If I saw Larry, I'd buy him a beer, and I'd say, I'm sorry if you feel bad about everything I say about you. But they have the wrong view of you, and that's what I'm upset about. And I don't know. I I mean, Rick Hahn giving him that contract, maybe... The suspicion is valid that he saw him as being a starter, or maybe it's just something that we've talked about before where Tony really wanted him back, and given what was available on the market in terms of middle infielders, Rick had to overpay to keep the guy. But looking at the rest of the lineup, if you're going to sit here and say that this is a misevaluation of talent, then you, you, you take each player individually, and you're looking at guys like Josh Harrison and A.J. Pollock, who are older guys who have established track records, and they are underperforming. I don't know if that's a talent evaluation situation or just a couple of guys who are having a bad start to the year. Same thing with Jose Abreu. I don't know that you're sitting here saying that they should have cut bait on Jose. Is any Was anybody calling for them to trade Jose Abreu in the offseason because he was done? And as far as Andrew, Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets and everybody else, I, I think you're still looking at these young guys and Gavin Sheets, you want to talk about small sample size, I think it's still too small of a sample size, and with Vaughn being in and out of the lineup because he's been hurt, I think it's too small of a sample size to say that these guys are failures at this point. And, and really, the only guy that, that I'm I'm kind of curious as to what they're going to get out of him is Yasmani Grandal, because he had a really bizarre offensive year last year, and you didn't necessarily address the backup catcher situation with somebody who was anticipated to hit. And we we talked in the last show about how Reese McGuire is basically your starting catcher, but has been a terrible hitter in his career. I got another theory I'm going to give you, but first I want to remind people that when you're down at the ballpark, the place to be, pregame, postgame, your viewing parties, right in the shadow of the ballpark at Cork and Carey at the park, 33rd in Princeton, award-winning menu of burgers, ballpark favorites on non-Sox home game Mondays. Two-for-one burgers whenever you dine in. They have an extensive bar with a rotation of craft beers, familiar favorites, spirits, and wines. And they continue to bring in uh, really good local Southside craft breweries. I was in one on this week's episode of Southside Pod, another podcast on the Broadcast Basement On Demand radio network. Sat down with a local Southside brewery who was telling me that a tap is going to be theirs. Uh, they believe over at Cork and Carry at the Park sooner rather than later. They they have a brand new beer. It was spectacular, and it's going to be the one that's going to be down there. So it, there's, it's always changing. It's a great place to go and get a drink. You're not paying a ridiculous amount of money. You're getting really good food, and you can bring in the kids beforehand. You can, you know, make it a day. You know, you get down there. Parking's terrible. Plan on getting down there a little early. Hang out there. When you want to leave, why get into that mess? Go over and have a beer or two. I leave my car right there in the in the White Sox parking lots. You can get them out an hour or so later. I, I've never had a problem with it. I'm not, I'm not making a guarantee here on this show. 
But there's things to do after the ball game, and the place to be is Cork and Carry at the park. Get over there, 33rd and Princeton, and never forget their original location in Beverly at 10614 Southwestern Avenue. All right, here's another theory for you. And this is the one that is the most polarizing, I believe. That the White Sox actually didn't have a problem when the year started. They came walking out of the gate and had a very nice start to their season. And their offense was running along just fine. And they got two days off in Cleveland. And Tony La Russa got too cute. And he started messing with his lineup. This is when he puts Larry Garcia up towards the top. This is when he starts moving guys to the bottom that shouldn't be there. This is when he starts juggling. And the lineups become incredibly inconsistent. And due to the fact that the manager not only stopped that momentum by playing games with his lineup, but that he continues to play games with his lineup with his uh, secondary leadoff position, which he tried again after we made fun of it. But then in the last game in Kansas City, suddenly Andrew Vaughn was not good enough to hit ninth. He's hitting seventh. He's never moving Jose Abreu, no matter how much that he struggles. He's stubborn to a fault. And that stubbornness of not putting guys in the right positions in the lineup, not giving protection to guys that might need protection, uh, and not constructing things specifically for the day, but also providing consistency so guys can get going. And we've heard Frank Thomas talk about this, and Scott Pitsednik talk about this, and I believe Gordon Beckham's talked about it, and Steve Stone is subtweeting people, and he's talking about it. There's an awful lot of people very close to this team who are questioning those lineups. So the onus on the offense falls on the manager. How much of it do you think actually falls on Tony La Russa? Well, the apologists will say that he doesn't swing a bat. This gets back to your first question about the ball and making adjustments. It's on the coaching staff to recognize what's going on and for them to put players in the best position to succeed that they can. Okay, so putting Larry Garcia in the three-hole, the reason why we all kind of laughed at that was this is not a guy that belongs in the three slot in any lineup ever. I just He does not fit the profile of a number three hitter. And the reason why we're questioning keeping Abreu in his current position where he's always been, I understand the loyalty to the guy, but at the same time, clearly this is a player who is struggling mightily and may have lost a step. So why are we not protecting Luis Robert? Why are we not protecting Tim Anderson better? Why are we not protecting Andrew Vaughn, quite frankly, who's one of the better hitters in the lineup? And why are we getting things like A.J. Pollock and Adam Engel back-to-back in a lineup where the two of them profile so similarly that it doesn't allow for, for even that kind of... It doesn't make the pitcher have to adjust their approach. Exactly. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make them have to do anything differently for, for two straight batters, which works out great if they don't have any idea how to get those guys out. But, you know, numbers suggest otherwise. So I don't think that this is as much of a crackpot theory as it is something that people are noticing around this team right now that whatever buttons and levers and other things that Tony's pulling, he's not really doing a great job of finding the right ones because the more he has tinkered, the less successful he's been. And when he has found a modicum of success, he seems to want to still try and tinker with it even further beyond something as simple as just saying, well, in this game, on this certain situation, Gavin Sheets should have a good game versus, say, Adam Engel. Or sitting there saying that this is the kind of player that can get Josh Harrison off the slide here that he's on because this is a pitcher he has owned in his career. Stuff like that, that's the kind of tinkering that he should be doing. But moving guys up and down in the lineup, 
you know, or trying to find some mythical, magical secondary leadoff hitter out of a guy who projects as one of your power hitters. Yeah, it's all stuff that smarter people than you and I, allegedly, have also noticed, and people who have been there have noticed, and, you know, even people who are really, really smart at baseball have noticed. So I don't think there's any question that this is a factor. There are only six White Sox batters with OPSs over 600 versus right-handed pitching so far this year, that which is sickening, and that that's a real issue, and that shows how bad things are. The, the best one is Tim Anderson at 758. Andrew Vaughn is second at 747. They're your best two hitters versus right-handed pitching. The only other guy over 700 uh, this season so far, you have in the minor leagues because you sent Danny Mendick back down. I mean, I'm not saying Danny Mendick's a world beater, but he was at least doing what he normally does. He's actually doing his career numbers. And you were like, ah, we don't have time for you, Danny. Gavin Sheets, Luis Robert, Jose Abreu also on that list, but super low. There are so many things that are wrong with this team, but they've got to figure it out somewhere along the line. Do they Do they fire Frank Benkino? What do you think? Well, if they fire Frank Benkino, then the question is who's coming in and are they going to be any better at this? Because uh, uh, you, Ed, I'm, gonna, I'm nominating you. I'm sending you in there. You're putting me up in there? Yeah, I'm putting you in there. What the heck? I think Gordon Beckham would sound good. He's, he sounds like he's been really, uh, he really has been on some of the approaches when he was filling in for Stoney. You know, he might not be a bad, you know, they, everybody always laughs like, well, the guy was a terrible hitter. How can he be the hitting coach? But sometimes terrible hitters are actually pretty good hitting coaches if they played the game in the major leagues because they remember what they did wrong. Right. And then they'll sit there and say, you know what? I should have taken that advice. He might be, he'd be an interesting one, like midseason, just like Gordon get in there. Just comes walking in and be like, what the hell's wrong with all you guys? You're all better than me. How are you not hitting? Like they need that. They need that kind of kick in the pants. Scott Merkin up next right here. Socks in the basement. On the phone line with me right now, he is so nice to give us his time. He has just sat down over four days and watched five baseball games, covered a team through a little bit of turmoil, I believe, this week. The the heat is being turned up on the White Sox. Scott Merkin from MLB.com. How are you, Merk? Good. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, I don't know. I'm torn. Like the, 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 the person that looks at things from a big picture says it's only May. The, the fan inside of me is really getting upset right now with the way that the team is playing. And it's really the offense. We talked about it here earlier on in the show. Is that how you're looking at this right now? If the offense could get fixed, all these other problems kind of go away. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, if they hit, they're going to take pressure off the starting pitchers. They're going to take pressure off the bullpens. There's going to be less worry about, you know, how often is Kendall Graveman used? How often is Joe Kelly used? How often is Liam Hendricks used? Because there'll be more chances for, you know, kind of bigger victories. They haven't had many of those this year. You know, I mean, even today, you look in the ninth inning and Tony LaRusa claims that it's just to mess with him. But, uh, you know, Liam had the tying run on base and I think he was three and one on, uh, or tying run at the plate. He was three and one on Ben Hendy. So I think it was Dozier who was up next, who could have been the game winning run. So nothing, nothing is easy for the White Sox, but the offense looked good today. And let's be honest. I don't want to diminish anyone who plays in the major leagues because if you get there, you're a darn good player, but you know, Carlos Fernandez is as great as he's been against the Sox in his career, and he was, I think, 3-0 and with a sub-2 ERA last year against them, has been bad this year. So they should hit him, and they should have hit, you know, the Royals today, and they did. You know, uh, Tim Anderson did a little bit of everything. Luis Robert was great, and, you know, the thing is, just as you can't parse every inning 
in every game and say, oh, my God, they left the bases loaded, you know, or Jose Abreu popped up with the bases loaded. He's done. You can see he's gotten old, you know, in one, in one offseason he's gotten old. You can't suddenly take the seven runs today against, you know, a last-place team and say, well, they're back. But to make a long answer, come to a close now, this is certainly much more what people thought they would look like than what they've looked like over the course of the first 37, most of the 37 games this year. Yeah, it was an interesting stop, though, in Kansas City. You know, earlier on in the week, Ozzie makes some comments. Uh, I think he's really talking about lineups and how many guys probably should be playing, but he talked about Tim Anderson specifically. Anderson shoots back on Twitter. Uh, you and I have kind of chatted a little bit about this. What I found interesting was Tony LaRusso, I believe, before the last game of the series or at the end of the, the fourth game of this series, he, he was talking to the press and he said something along the lines of coaches should be taking criticism and it you know they should be taking criticism off of the players. Is that all connected? Is that Tony also saying, hey, if you're going to take a shot at who's playing in these games, say it about me? Yeah, you know, first of all, nobody that I've covered managing and I managed, I covered, I managed, I managed a couple little league teams. I think <laughs> I covered uh, Jerry Manuel one year, Ozzy eight, Robin five, Ricky four, and now Tony two. So there's your, there's your 20 years on MLB.com. And nobody in that time did a better job of that than Ozzy. And especially in 05, he was brilliant. I mean, they were, they went from 15 games up to one and a half games up in that season. They, they weren't going to miss the playoffs, but you know, everyone's thinking, here we go. You know, this team hasn't won since 1918. It's going to, you know, drop out all of a sudden. And he said, you know, he came up with the brilliant line about if they won, he may retire. And he was not retiring. There's no question. He, he loved doing that job from, you know, from what I could tell at least. And I think, you know, in the long run, it was, it was much to do about nothing. Ozzy made a comment, but Tim has every right to perceive, you know, to say that if he feels, it was like, you know, he should be out there playing more as opposed to people were, were split on whether it was something about, you know, Tony's lineups or whether Tim should be out there playing. And Tim made a comment back, ended up, you know, eventually deleting the tweet. To be honest, we shouldn't give it a lot of talk because Tim's a great player. You can have days off. You can lose games to Kansas City and you can still win a World Series. I'm sure the Dodgers lost games to Arizona last year. Uh, one year when Cleveland made the playoffs, they won 17 times against the White Sox, and they still lost twice to them. So I think way too much is being made over that. I think it was Ozzy doing his job as an analyst and Tim standing up for himself, which he does very well, and he should because he's one of the – I still think he's an MVP candidate for you know the American League in 2022 and beyond. He's that important and that good overall. Well, he's kind of driving the team right now. And he has. I mean, I mean, look at – the Sox have a, a – I don't have it in front of me because I shut down my stuff, but they have a note on their front page about the record when he plays and when he gets two hits and when he gets three hits. I think last night was like just the 14th time in the last 47 games that he's had three hits in 2019 that they lost. So they're 33 and 14 when he gets three hits. And, and that's the highest total, by the way, of anyone in baseball since 2019. So Tim really has become kind of a, you know, it sounds weird, but kind of an artist, kind of a craftsman with the bat out there. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's told me before that, you know, he studied, I see him before the game. I see him, you know, doing his work and studying on the iPad. And he said he only looks at hits because in typical Tim fashion, Tim has a really good way of like just kind of putting everything together for you and just saying it straight out. He said, you know, why would I look it out? Because I'm not doing well there. I'm going to look and see what I did well on the hit. So, you know, Tim's a great player. Ozzy's a great analyst. And just leave it at that. Let them both go forward. And Tim's going to be fine. And everything else is too. We're on with Scott Merkin. MLB.com covers the White Sox extremely well. 
every guest on Socks in the Basement, including Merck, brought to you by the Village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces? It's all in the Village of Lamont. Shop, dine, drink, explore. There's always something going on this Saturday, May 21st, a 5K, the Spring Trail Chase. The Lamont Antiques Roadshow is in town as well this Saturday and on Sunday. Pet Palooza Pet Parade, a free community pet parade. That and more in Lamont. Learn more at lamontdowntown.com. You know, one of the weirder things that happened this week was the uh, invention of the second leadoff man. Uh, I, and Tony was trying to explain why Andrew Vaughn was at the bottom of the lineup. Uh, Tony's right, always done right. interesting things before. He's the guy that would sometimes put a pitcher in the eighth spot in the National League. So he's done these things before. This may be something he truly believes in. But I had the theory that at the time uh, when he did that, his nine, one, two, and three hitters in the lineup were his best four hitters going into that game. Right. But Abreu was still in the four spot. Is, is, who makes that decision? Is Jose Abreu basically not going to get moved no matter how poorly he plays? Does he get a lot of rope because he's Jose Abreu? Does Tony feel there's a respect thing where it's like, no matter what, that guy's got to be in the center of the lineup? Or what do you feel about that? I think that's a small part of it, but I think like if it comes June and Jose's still hitting around 200, there may be a little move. I don't think you're going to see Jose hit ninth. No. Because let's, let's be realistic. You know, Jose Abreu, if he is struggling and breaks out in a 10-day period again, no offense to anyone else on the team, but he's going to do more damage than probably Gavin Sheets is going to do, right, in a 10-day period if he's hitting fourth. I understand you have Yasmani Grandal, you have A.J. Pollock, you have a lot of guys you can turn to that lineup. But I don't think it's just that Tony's saying, no, no, he's you know the leader on this team, he's beloved. I, I don't know if you saw, I tweeted out a couple quotes earlier in the week from a, a big article I did on Andrew Vaughn where he said he thinks there should be an E60, you know, the ESPN, like kind of, you know, longer form show on Jose Abreu as a, as a leader because he's the best teammate he's ever had. But, you know, respect is great. And Jose would be the first one to say this, that if he's not doing the job, eventually you got to move him. But again, let's keep things in perspective. It's 38 games now. They're 19 and 19 as, as of this taping. And, you know, I, I just can't imagine. Maybe I'm going to be proven wrong. Maybe I'm going to be proven wrong at the end of the year. But if the guy came through last year where he was literally beaten up from start to finish with 30 home runs and 117 RBIs, Unless it took, uh, you know, the offseason to have some sort of effect, I can't imagine that he's lost it in one offseason. I think he's going to be fine. I mean, is he going to be the same 314 hitter that he once was? No, probably not. He's probably more 260, 270, and he's actually drawing, not actually, he is drawing some walks. I still think the home runs will be 25, the RBIs will be near 100 once the season gets going. You know, I, I, they need to have guys like Abreu and Grandal, who after he came back from his surgery last year, hit the ball hard, basically, I'm not exaggerating, every single time he was up, and Pollock is starting to hit. So there's three guys that are important to that offense among the many out there. You wrote a, a great piece, and I think it was part one of two, with a conversation with Rick Hahn, and something that jumped out to me during the, the first half of it that you released was that Hahn was addressing right field, and he was talking about how everybody wanted him to go out and get a left-handed hitter. But in getting A.J. Pollock, you got a guy who can hit right-handed pitching and left-handed pitching equally good almost. So it really didn't matter what side of the plate he was standing on. Meanwhile, we've seen Tony La Russa still go lefty-righty, lefty-righty and not really treat A.J. that way, at least early on in the season. Are those guys sometimes not on the same page? Is there sometimes a disconnect between them and they have to still work to figure out why they had these guys in the lineup? Because that seemed to contradict what Tony was doing. Well, you'll have to read part two because that is addressed by Rick in part two. And I can just give you a little hint. A teaser! I can give you a little hint that there's no issues between them. That okay. is, it's a good 
it's a good working relationship and both sides are open to ideas. So I, I, I don't want to give too much away. Check out the newsletter on Tuesday and then it'll probably be on the site on Wednesday. But that is one of the things that he talks about for, for part two, which I should say, not to, not to make it seem like Rick kind of doing nothing but sitting down with me for interviews. This is all done in one interview. And I, it was just so much stuff from Rick that I had to split it into two different two different periods, pretty much. Well, you know, if you get him, you got to ask him everything, you know? I mean, you probably got like a list that's sitting in your back pocket. Sure. He's a, he's a busy man. And even with the 15 minutes, he, you know, was kind of, kind of like he's, you know, giving me charity, like he's paying off my college education, which is actually <laughs> done already. But, but no, I mean, you know, that he took time out for the 15 minutes. But I mean, yeah, even then there was like probably six or seven more questions that I wanted to ask that I didn't even get to. So then are they all on the same page with this, what seems to be uh, resting really early? There's a lot of rest of their players. I mean, Reese McGuire's actually had more games behind the plate than Yasmani Grandal. So this right. is a this is a complete team philosophy early on. Is that what you're saying? I don't know about that. I mean, I you know, I didn't. I think no team in baseball probably has a perfect 100% agreement between the front office and the, you know, the manager and the coaching staff every single game. There's going to be discrepancies, but I one of the things Rick kind of told me is that they're able to talk about this stuff and, you know, they're open to, he's open to what, you know, he is suggested to him, I should say. You know, first of all, Tim wants to play all the time. So it's up to Tony and same with Jose. Yeah, same with most of these guys. So it's up to, I, probably all of these guys. So it's up to Tony to kind of, you know, watch what they do. And as Jose said, you know, he's got 2000 wins in his career. So he knows what he's doing. You know, when the Yankees series finished, they will have played 17 and 17 days. And as Tony pointed out, the game they didn't play was supposed to be 18 and 17 days was the one that was, you know, the COVID cancellation, but they did all the work for the game and that was canceled at like 1230. So, you know, they really have done almost 18 and 17 days and now they're going to get a, a good, they have an off day Monday, they have an off day Friday, you know, you want these guys playing at their best in August, September, October. It doesn't, I get every game counts the same on the schedule, but if you have a team that should win this division and should be a contender, you want them as fresh as possible at the end of the season. All right, we're heading to New York. It wasn't pretty when we saw the Yankees uh, in Chicago, but I am encouraged by looking at how the pitching set up. So before you, you leave us here this time, I'm curious your thoughts on the idea that Keuchel, who had success, he is a different type of pitcher. He's not a power pitcher anymore, uh, and he's right. a ground ball pitcher. Cueto, who does things to mess up timing, he never looks the same pitch to pitch, and then the decision will be made based upon what's going on with Michael Kopech, if he will be able to come back from the paternity list. I know he's waiting for the birth of his child, or it will be Dylan Cease on Sunday. So you might see a different result from the pitchers this time around, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was just saying, and I wrote this about, you know, it, it, I'm really interested to see what Nestor Cortez looks like facing the Sox the second time in a week because he was that was probably the best game I've seen pitch this year when he drew against the Sox on Sunday. He was absolutely dominant in that game, aside from an Adam Angle home run he pulled down the left field line. And on the flip side of that, I'd like to see what Dallas Keuchel does, you know, pitching for the second time against the Yankees also in a week. He pitched last Saturday, Cortez pitched last Sunday. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. And Again, to go one step further, let's see what Johnny Cueto does. Johnny Cueto was so entertaining to watch on Monday. And I'm acting like, you know, he's this new find for the White Sox. This is his 15th year, right? He's been doing this for almost two decades at this point. But, you know, he was facing a team that's not very good on Monday, which is fine. You know, you you, you pitch against everyone and see what happens. But I want to now see what he does and how, how this plays against arguably the best offense in baseball right now, right? Either them Houston or the Dodgers, I guess. So it should be an, it should be an interesting matchup. It should be an interesting weekend at Yankee Stadium. 
All right, Scott Merkin, I think his next uh, thing that he'll be following, or at least somewhere down the line, he's going to start following a story about Dallas Keuchel trying to get more innings because he's got to get to a certain point to make $20 million next year, Scott. And I already see that simmering. I think you're going to have more conversations with Dallas about, I want more innings, don't you think? Well, he's talked about it, but I mean, you know, none of us have really gone into that because I think, he, you know, he's a competitor. This is what he wants to do. Now, of course, anyone who has that out there is going to be in your mind, right? I mean, it's not like if he gets to 160 innings, he's going to get 35 bucks, right? So I right. mean, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be in your mind. But I, I think right now it really is for the most part based on, you know, him wanting to do his job and give, be given the chance to show that he can go deeper than what he has. But it's going to be interesting how this whole rotation plays out, you know, when, Kopech is back from turning leave. Lance Lynn is back in June after the knee surgery and just see how they, how they were. And, you know, they, they got a nice look at Davis Martin the other night, who could be someone who could factor in somewhere on the pitching staff before the season's over. Scott Merkin writes for MLB.com. He covers the White Sox. He does it really well. He gives us great information and he's nice enough to take time out at the end of a very busy several days before he gets on a plane and goes and follows them in another town. He's on his way to the Big Apple. Follow him at Scott Merkin on Twitter. Check him out on MLB.com. Thanks so much, Merkin. Okay, Chris. Anytime. Take care. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.